I'll give a wave like this just to let you know that that joke is over. Okay. I misbehave on stage, but I'm better than when I wasn't sober. Okay, so I'm, I'm sobered up, but there's still some blackouts. And um... I worked in hymens and survived tornadoes and trailers, but that don't mean I won't put in my two weeks later having a good time, baby. Having a good time, baby. We're having a real good time. We're having a good time, baby. Having a good time, baby. I'll tell you one more time. Oh, yeah. We're, We're having, having a good, good time. time. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the We're Having a Good Time podcast. My name's Dusty Slay. I am your host. Uh, and I'm pumped to be here. I, this is Thursday. I'm a day late on the day that I've decided that I'll have my podcast out. I, I said that my podcast will be out every Wednesday, but, uh, most of the time it's not out on Wednesday. It's Thursday around 1 PM. But to be honest, if I'm being completely honest, I tried to record this on Tuesday. I sat down, I got in this chair, I sat down, I put my camera on, I put my podcast equipment on and I proceeded to talk and then I talked for about 20 minutes and about 20 minutes into it I had a moment where I kind of blanked out and then when I came to I was like what am I talking about and then I just got up and I said I'll finish it later and now here I am two days later just starting over completely I don't remember what I was talking about I don't know I know that I was trying to give uh, comics advice and I think it's good sound advice, but I also didn't sound like I knew what I was talking about. So I don't know. I don't know. You know, it's uh, it's more difficult than you would think to sit in a, lo- a room alone and just talk. It's, um, I mean, I don't mind it. I, I actually prefer it. Um, I wouldn't mind a person that would just sit in the room with me and just kind of agree with things that I'm saying and ask a question occasionally, but I don't want a full-on co-host. I just want a yes man, really. Does that make sense? They don't necessarily have to agree with me, but I need, mainly what I need is someone to sit here and me to look at and talk to. Um, that way, at least, that this is what I need. I need someone to go, um, I need someone to look at and go, does that make sense? Do you know what I mean? And then they can say yes or no to it. That way I'll know if I'm making sense or not. You know, there was a um, joke I tried to write one time. I saw a bird with a cigarette. I said I couldn't tell if that bird had... uh, Well, how did the joke go? I don't know. Does that make sense? See, that's why I need a person in here. I saw a bird with a cigarette and I was like... I couldn't tell if that bird thought it was food or if that bird just had a rough day. You know what I mean? Like he was like, I need to kick back. Another failed joke I I said one time, uh, I was in Washington, D.C. And I like to tell where I was actually at during the the telling of the joke because it, um, I don't know, it just seems more real to me when I'm really telling you where it's at. But I was in D.C. And the problem with this joke is that everybody needs to make it political. I remember saying the joke and I was talking about seeing a rat and somebody was like, well, it's probably a lot better than the rat running the country right now. And it's just like, okay, guys, 
Why don't you try to find a way to make everything political in this world? It's like, my goodness, I wish we could just get rid of the federal government and then uh, never talk about anybody there again. I wish our politicians weren't our modern day celebrities. I feel like the beginning of reality TV led us to this place where we know uh, our politicians' names. I wish we didn't even know their names. Ah, it's so annoying. I just, I can hear it in people's voices. They just want to talk about politics and, and, oh, and policies. And, well, this one would make us all better. And it's like, ugh, just, I just wish we could be like, all right, government, uh, take away a bunch of the rules that you've made and then just let us live our lives. How about you not tax us to death? Oh, have you ever talked about taxes with someone? And then they defend taxes. They go, this is what they love to do. They go, what about the roads? And it's like, oh gosh, it just drives me crazy. I just wish that, uh, that we didn't have property tax. And, uh, but everybody, they're always ready with a defense of a tax. And I'm just like, all right, whatever your defense is of that tax, let's take that tax away and then let's just figure it out. You know what I mean? Like, oh, uh, I don't know how this started this way, but I feel pretty good about it. But anyway, so yeah, so I saw this. I was in D.C. one time and I saw this rat uh, just running around on the street and it had no tail, had a little bit of a nub of a tail and it just looked like it had a rough night. And I was walking by and this guy goes, he walks by and he goes, that's a short tail rat right there. And uh, like it was a, a, a kind, like a species of rat. But I'm just watching this rat and it's like, I felt like that rat had had like, like, I feel like rats are out doing their job at nighttime while we're all asleep. And it's like this rat overslept, but still needed to get its work done, right? It's like, oh, I overslept. I got, I'm hungover. I'm overslept, but I lost my tail, but I still got some stuff to do. I got to get some food and I got to find that tail before my wife does. And I always felt like that was funny, but, um, and then another thing people say, people used to say, they'll say, well, I do that, right? Like I say, I think it's dumb that people will drive around a parking lot looking for a close spot just to go inside a grocery store and walk around. Like you're just going to be walking around in there. What difference does it make if you walk a little further in the parking lot? I remember saying that to a girl I was dating at the time, and she goes, well, I do that. Like suddenly, like because they do it, it's it's okay. Oh, it's like, oh, well, if you do it, then it's not as stupid as I thought it was. Um, I used to work with this guy at Office Depot. And then we, we, we opened a brand new Office Depot in North Charleston. I was part of that, opening a brand new Office Depot. They named me Employee of the Month while we were opening that because I was crushing it. And... Shortly after that, they were ready to fire me over showing up late and hung over. I met a called in sick, uh, but I went to the Plex. I don't know if you remember the, I don't, I don't know any Charleston people remember the Plex, but it was a giant movie theater. Uh, well, I guess it wasn't giant. It was a movie theater that they turned into a bar. So each individual room had its own kind of themes. Like there was like a Western room. 
It was like our hip hop room. I mean, it was wild. I had a good time. I was dancing with this girl one time that my my buddy did not approve of. I won't say why because I don't want to I don't want to shame people, but he did not approve of me dancing with this girl, but I was drunk. I was just having a good time. And then me and him ended up getting into a fight in the Waffle House afterwards, and then he left me. He got a cab and left. This was the, long before Uber. This guy, he got, this is one of my best friends still to this day, though. He got a cab and left me. And I'm yelling in there. I was yelling in the Waffle House. I'm a maniac when I drink too much. And the lady that worked at the Waffle House goes, she goes, you got to get out of here. And I was like, you better get me a to-go box then. And I think I took my to-go box and ate Waffle House in the parking lot and then drove home. I've been drinking and driving since way before drinking and driving was cool. You know what I mean? And, um, oh, this was another concept that I had. I don't know why I'm just open micing it on the podcast, but antique stores. You ever go to an antique store and, and it's like, it's just like going into a Goodwill, except they've named their stuff antique and now it costs more. That never was going to be a good joke. Uh, but I just thought this, they were like, uh, Hey, what do you want to do with all this junk? You want to just throw it away? And they're like, nah, let's open a store. And you're like, you want to charge really low prices and try to get rid of it? No, let's call it antique and charge more than we paid for it. That's a good one. That's a good TikTok sketch. I may make that later. Uh, this guy told me he drove on the Autobahn, and I was like, uh, What's that look like? And he showed me pictures of his entire German vacation and very little of the Autobahn. Okay. All right, we're having a good time. I'm pumped to be here. Let's do this. Where we've been, where we're going. Where they going. Where they been. Where they going. Where where they been. Where we're going, where we've been. All right, I'm fired up today. Uh, where have I been? Uh, last week I did the Opry twice, and I got to do the Opry on uh, a Friday, and that um, was a lot of fun. Uh, I met uh, the Gatlin brothers. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but I grew up listening to the Gatlin brothers, or at least I think I did. Uh, my dental hygienist told me that her dad plays with the Gatlin brothers, and then I started naming uh, some of my favorite um um, Statler Brothers songs. And then she was like, that's the Statler Brothers. And I was like, oh gosh, okay. Do I even know the Gatlin Brothers? And then I did know a few songs by them and I liked them a lot. And I met Larry Gatlin and the Gatlin Brothers and they have songs. Um, oh yeah, I remember doing this. I talked about this and I got into that. Maybe, maybe playing this song derailed me, but I'm going to play a little bit of it just so you're familiar with who the Gatlin Brothers are too. I know that you're dying to know, but here we go. You ready? Somebody else's name. So I mean, they harmonize like nobody's business. And, uh, oh, this is a good one. Houston, Houston means that I'm a one day. 
All right, so that's the Gatlin brothers. I met them uh, at the Opry. That was a lot of fun. I love doing the Opry. There's, I've really gotten to, I've done the Opry probably 14 times now, I think, and uh, it's really great. I mean, I love being able to do it. I've gotten to know everybody that works there, or at least so many people that work there, and I just get to stand there and hang out and talk to them and it's amazing to me. Honestly, it's amazing. I mean, I had a manager and I think I've said this before and I'm not trying to shame him, even though we we're we're not on speaking terms. Um, I asked him probably about 2018. I said, I'd really like to do the Opry. And I was frustrated with him at this point. I was about ready to try to search out a new manager when I did end up leaving him later that year. And this was kind of the start of it. But um, I don't know if this was the start of it. It doesn't matter. But he, um, I told him I wanted to do the opera. And he, he said, why? Like in such a shocked tone, like, why would you want to do the opera? And I'm like, I don't know, because I love country music. And the opera is like the most famous country music stage there is. Why else? And he goes, well, I'll work on it. He goes, just so you know, though, that's a long way off. And then I got a new manager, and she had me booked on this thing in the Opry. I didn't even tell her I wanted to do the Opry. She just called me one day. She goes, all right, I got you on at the Opry. And I was like, boom. I love it. And uh, so now I've done it like 14 times. It's really great. And I did it twice last week, and that was a lot of fun. And then I did my friend Evan Burke's show, uh, uh, show and tell. He has a show and tell show that he's doing now. And it was a lot of fun. I went on and talked about getting shot with a BB gun. You know, a story I've told several times. But that video will come out on YouTube. Uh, show and tell with Evan Burke. It'll be later. My YouTube channel's hot, too. I got a lot of stuff on there. I don't know if you listen to the YouTube channel. It's great. I'm also, I may delete Twitter. I've been thinking about it. I think Twitter's stupid. I barely have any followers. I mean, it's, it's funny to say that, but it's like 6,000 people follow me. In any other setting, having 6,000 people follow you would be an amazing feat. It would be like, wow, 6,000 people follow you? And it's like, yeah, I'm like a cult leader. But on Twitter, it's practically no followers. So I'm thinking about deleting it because I think it's a, uh, a poisonous uh, death trap of, of just hate, and yeah, I just think it sucks. There used to be a few conspiracy channels on there that I like to follow. I like the weird stuff, but they get deleted by Twitter and they get deleted by YouTube now too. So stuff's becoming more boring. Censorship is making things really boring. Um, I remember when, you know, when like Christians were censored. Well, I don't remember it, but I remember people talking about it. When Christians used to censor everything and then this this rebellious, these punk rock people came out and they were like, we're not going to take the censorship. We want freedom. And then finally, like it like the freedom broke out and everybody got to share things. And there was this great non-censoring of things. And it was like, oh, this is amazing. This is wonderful. And now it's like those same kind of like punk rock people are now like censor it, censor it, put on a mask, you killer. All right, here it is, your weekly mask rant. Put on a mask, you're going to kill my grandmother. 
you know what I mean? It's like, I don't know that I really have a mask rant right now, but I felt like that played in well together. Uh, yeah, nothing's happened. Nobody's really harassed me about a mask. I went out to the Brentwood Mall or the Franklin Mall. I couldn't tell which one it was and uh, uh, had to get fitted for a tux. And uh, I'm going to a wedding. And the, it felt like the guy at the tux place was about to be rude to me. And then he uh, he's like, what's your name? And I was like, Dusty Slade goes, hey, I thought so. I saw you at Zany's. And then he brought me on in before they opened, and we got fitted up, and he took a picture with me. It was a lot of fun. And uh, But I didn't have to wear a mask, and it was great. And uh, But somebody did uh, tag me on Twitter about, they said, uh, you know, I don't know, trying to, they showed some video of some guy being like, we need mask mandates. And then, uh, because people on TV, on the news, love to advocate for the citizens that we have no freedom. They love to tell us that. They love to go, we need more mask mandates because the regular people out in the world don't deserve freedom. You know, they love to do those sorts of things. They won't say it like that, but that is what they mean. They mean that, you know, they're high up in their chairs on their news channels making millions of dollars. Uh, probably, uh, you know, you've seen them on the news when they, when the cameras, they think the cameras cut off, they take their mask off. And I've actually seen politicians say, I saw a, kind of an off camera thing where they were like, uh, uh, you don't have to wear your mask. And she was like, well, I want to do a little political theater, you know, kind of laughed. And it's like, it's a joke. I mean, everybody knows, uh, anybody that's really studied it. I mean, it's like, I don't know. It doesn't make a lot of sense. There's not a lot of evidence behind it. Uh, to show that it actually does anything. And then it's always like, well, if everybody would do it, it would help. And uh, it's like, all right, we just want to breathe. Anyway, but I was in the Franklin Mall. There was a lot of maskless people in there, and I loved it. But this is the thing. This is what I want to say, and I always want to emphasize this. If you want to wear a mask and that makes you comfortable, I 100% support it. I 100% support it, and I want you to. If it makes you feel good, I want you to do it. I'm not mad at you. I won't make fun of you. Uh, if you want to do it, do it. But don't be telling me what to do. That's what I hate. I hate being told what to do. And I hate being told that I'm foolish for not being wanting to, want, not wanting to be told what to do. You know, that's what they do now. They go, well, Americans are stubborn. If we had been locked down like China, that's like, ooh, take it easy, guys. Um uh, I love freedom. I mean, freedom is a, is an amazing, wonderful thing. And when you lose freedom, you never get it back. The government doesn't go, we'll take freedom from you for a little while and then we'll give it back. Because the government doesn't give us freedom. The government only takes freedom away. And I don't care if you're a, a Republican or a Democrat. It makes no difference. They uh, would like to take your freedom away. That's what people in to, to govern means to control, and that's what they want to do. And I've always heard people mock people that, that say, I like freedoms. They always do it with a southern accent. Go, trying to take my freedoms. And it's like, well, I mean, I, I don't know. You can mock people that like freedom all you want, but people that come to this country from countries where they don't have freedom, uh, unless they're a second generation, uh, a lot of times, second generation kids, uh, you know, they're, you know, they're raised up in America and, you know, and they've trained to hate America too. But people who come from the actual oppressive countries into America, they love it. And they're like, I do not want, um, 
you know, I do not want that same oppressive things on me that I left. Because I think what they've done a really good job with is equating, uh, you know, not having the same success as not having equality. You know what I mean? And things are never going to be truly equal for anyone. I mean, you know, I was born in a trailer park. I had divorced parents. My, I have uh, sisters with multiple, like my mom has, I have the same, me and my older sisters, we have the same mom, different dad. My younger sister, we have the same dad, different mom. So my younger sister's not related to my older sisters. I grew up with a very complex family tree without a lot of money. I lived in a trailer for a long time. I had, you know, self-confidence issues for most of my life, uh, just trying to figure out who I was and where I fit in in the world. And it's like, that is universal, regardless of your race, regardless of anything. It's like, uh, the, the economic struggle is real and um, it takes a lot to overcome it. That's why I think that's why I think Jesus is so amazing because he brings us all in. He welcomes us all in regardless of uh, uh, race, economic status, uh, you know, body size. There's no body shaming with Jesus. And uh, and I just think it's amazing. And uh, so I'll do a little Bible talk at the end. And uh, I don't know. I don't even know what I'm talking about today. I do have some stuff that I want to talk about, but I'm just, you know, I'm just into it. I'm just feeling it. And I just feel like there is a bit of a, a move right now for freedoms to really be pushed away. And I, I think it, if ever there's a, been a time to, you know, speak up about it, the time is now. And I, I don't think that it's, I heard someone say the other day, this was sent to me in a text actually, that they know of a person who, got fully vaxxed but, and didn't want to wear the mask anymore but didn't want to, they, they wanted to keep wearing the mask because they didn't want people to think they were a Republican. And I think that's so sad, right? Because it's like, uh, I just think you should want your breathing holes to be uncovered regardless of your pol political affiliation. You know what I mean? Because it's not political to me. I don't care who's telling me to wear a mask. I'm not into it. I don't care who's, it's like, this is what I think we need. We need to really get back to is like, we need our own set, you know, you individually as a person need your own set of moral standards, your own set of, uh, what do we call it? Uh, principles uh, and, and, and what you want to see. And then we look, and when you go to vote, you say, well, who's the politician that supports mostly what I stand for? And then vote for that person regardless of the letter beside their name. That's what I think we need. But hey, what do I know? I'm, you know, I'm an idiot. Um, and, uh, oh, I was going to say on Twitter, there's no point in tagging me and things like that, though, because I'm not going to respond to them because Twitter is a nasty place. And I, I feel a little freer to talk on the podcast, even though it's, you know, it's out there and it's, it's forever and people get canceled for podcasts too. But I just feel like if I'm putting it on the podcast, you're already subscribed. You listen at this point, you know where I stand with it. And it's like, you know, it is what it is. I still love you. Even if you don't stand with me on it. Uh, but on Twitter, it's a different thing. I mean, people come at you like, uh, like maniacs. I mean, I, I don't even post much on Twitter, but I read a lot. Oh, yeah. I made a post here. I mean, I'm a big Tim Tebow fan. I, I love Tim Tebow. When he played for the Florida Gators, I wasn't such a big fan because I'm an Alabama fan, and he was beating up on Alabama a little bit. Now, in the end, we beat him. 
I say we. I mean, Alabama beat him. And I didn't play for the team. I didn't go to the college. I don't donate money. I don't have, so I can't say we. But you know how people do. And But when Tim Tebow went to the pros, I became a big fan. And integrity-wise, I always liked him. Now, people seem to hate Tim Tebow because he's not a great quarterback, right? Nobody, I don't know anybody really that's like Tim Tebow is the greatest quarterback ever. I think they just want to see Tim Tebow play. Tim Tebow sells tickets. So whatever franchise would pick him up, he would sell tickets. He would sell jerseys. He would make money for that place. And then I heard this about Tebow, that whenever he would go to a city to play, he would go to the, you know, the children's home or whatever. And I could be off on some of these facts, but he would, you know, take kids to the game, give them tickets to the game. And then after the game, he would spend like an hour hanging out with the kids. And you don't hear about this stuff, but he's actually just a really great dude from what I understand. He also right now is, uh, I think the Tim Tebow Foundation is really uh, trying to help victims of human trafficking, sex trafficking and stuff like that, which is a really big problem in the world and in the country. And Tebow's really trying to help. And I posted now, because there's talk that Urban Meyer, the former coach of the Florida Gators and Ohio State, but Tim Tebow's former coach, is now the Jacksonville Jaguars coach and is there's some talk that Tebow, now I don't know where it's at at this point, but I'm just talking on previous info, that Tebow would go and play um, tight end, right? And I don't know if he'd be good at it. I don't care. The Jaguars have not been good for a long time. What does it? What difference does it make? Sell some tickets, sell some jerseys. So Tim Tebow would go and play, and I said, if Urban, and I never liked Urban Meyer. I don't like the guy. I feel like he's a snaky guy. Now, I don't know a lot about him, but I do feel like he's a bit snaky. Um, but I said, I've never liked Urban Meyer, and it, but if he brings Tebow back to the NFL, I'll take back everything I've ever said about him. And I will. Uh, uh, not that Urban Meyer cares at all what I think or say, but I, I, I would forgive him and all, all would be... But people came on and it's like they want to attack Jesus because of whatever thing they have against Tebow. And you can't have, and that's why I think, I mean, so many people just want to attack God and want to attack Jesus. And it's really weird because Tebow has never done anything, at least publicly, that was bad, you know? Um Privately, who knows what he's done? I, I have no idea. But it, there's never, and I would think that if there was something about him, it would come out because people do not seem to like Tebow. And I think it's, you know, it's just a war on their own war on Jesus. And and most people, honestly, most people that are very anti-Christian, and I, I can't say all, but I would say most people that I know that are anti-Christian, they grew up you know, go into some type of Christian school or they were involved in a church and they have um, bad memories. And, and a lot of times I think rightly so, they're angry with the church because the church has done them wrong. And I think that that is 100% okay and legitimate. That's why I'm not uh, a big proponent of the church because I feel like our church in a lot of ways has let us all down as Christians. And so when people come to me with their complaints about the church, I'm on board. I support it because I I grew up, 
I went to a lot of churches when I was a kid. I've been to a lot of them, and I feel like it can be full of uppity, um, you know, hypocritical people, as we all say and as we all know. I mean, it can be full. Even, you know, all the way from from the most conservative of churches to the most, uh, you know, non-denominational uh, full-on guitar band on the stage and it's rocking out and they're selling coffee and books in the lobby. I mean, it, they can all be full of that. And that's why I talk about the kind of stuff that I want to, that I talk about, which is not really much to do with the church, but it's coming back to the, the roots of Christianity, Hebrew roots, as some would call it. And, you know, I got a couple of verses that I've been looking at this week and I'm jumping into this early, but, um, um, so I, I'm, I'm going to skip it, but I, I just want to say this. I wrote this down. I think people think too little of themselves. I think we've all been convinced that we are insignificant little accidents out here, too stupid not to destroy our own planet and each other, that our life has no value, that we don't deserve happiness if we don't have the su success that the world says we should have. That's the lie we are told to keep us from realizing that we are all children of a loving God who not only wants, oh, who, who only wants us to turn away from our sins of the world and towards him. That if we will humble ourselves and ask for Jesus to save us, that our eyes will be opened. Fulfillment lies in Jesus. Then we can live lives where we all care about God and each other. And, um, you know, basically, uh, you know, and the commandments are not hard. I mean, I, that's in all the email exchanges that I got with people in, and, and just to explain that, I know sometimes when I write things down and then read them, I can't even read my own thing that I wrote, but it's just that I feel like there has been this concerted effort to, uh, make us seem like we're not worth anything. None of us. We're all, even in the churches, the preachers are always like, I'm just a worthless sinner. And it's like, I just feel like if that's the kind of conversation you want to have between you and God, I think that is okay. I mean, that is a form of humbling. But when you do it in front of people, I feel like it just makes uh, us all once again look bad and look like we're, there's so, such an effort to say, you know, oh, we're just accidents and this happened and we're just a product of, a, of, a, of, an, ex, of an explosion of nothing that formed everything. And then through that, over time, millions of years, we slowly came to be and our lives are meaningless and all we have is our time on earth. And, and that's what I think people leads to be like, oh, I got to make the best of this. I got to make the most of this because this is all I got. When my belief is that this is just the beginning. This is just the beginning of everything that there is. And, uh, and you know, upon the reading that I've done of the New Testament, because I tend to read the Old Testament most off, uh, the Old Testament, you know, is full of commandments, right? But it's like the New Testament is also full of commandments. And I find that the the, the the commandments in the New Testament and the things they say there are much harder. It's like, to me, everybody seems to say that the New Testament wiped away the old laws. And I'm like, man, the New Testament seems like it made it harder. 
Now, of course, we have the Holy Spirit to help us, and we have Jesus, we have grace. I mean, that all exists, and that is there to be our, our help and to make things easier. But it seems like it has, uh, they really heightened it. They upped the ante. They were like, hey, get on board here. But, hey, all right. So I do have some other stuff that I'll talk about at the end. But I want to talk about, let's go, let's do this. Let's see what this button is. I need a button just to separate segments because I don't really have any food that I've eaten. There is a nice Jewish deli in town now in East Nashville. I forget what it's called, but it is really great. I'll find that out for the next episode. Really great. Uh, if you like that sort of stuff, I mean, um, they got a great Reuben, and I love a Reuben. I'm going to tell you, one of my favorite sandwiches is a Reuben. I never really liked Thousand Island on anything but a salad, you know, because I grew up, you know, pretty redneck, and rednecks love a Thousand Island dressing. And, uh, and then I, um, uh, but, and I never liked sauerkraut and honestly, I never really liked corned beef or pastrami if I'm being honest, but I came into the pastrami thing later in life and it's delicious, but you put it all together on some rye bread and I'm on board, man. You had a little Swiss cheese or whatever it is. I don't know what kind of cheese it is. I've also been trying to make homemade pizzas out of oat flour and I am bad at it. But I tell you what, I am good at topping a pizza. I've made the, it's a, really a lot of flavor, but I can't get the dough to rise. If you have any advice on how to get oat flour dough to rise, let me know. And what I want to do here is I want to talk about my, my early days in Charleston and coming into comedy. And then I'm going to, you know, I'm going to try to cap that off with a little advice on just some stuff. If you're trying to get into comedy, I know I've done a, a long thing and then uh, on that in the past, but I'm gonna try to talk about that. And also I'm going to try to talk about, um, um, you know, if you're a feature act, what my advice would be for you right now in this time. Now it could all change because it looks like things are going to open up. I hope so. I got a real fear that we're going to open up for a little while and then it's all going to get shut back down, but I hope not. I'm, I'm, I'm being hopeful now that our country comes back and it comes back strong and we start, you would just start, you know, um, I was going to say that we just start banging, but that sounds like I'm talking about something else. Um, all right. So uh, this is my story on why it doesn't matter how long someone's been doing comedy. When you ask somebody how long they've been doing comedy, they'll tell you a number and you either, based on how good they are, you either think, wow, that's a long time or wow, that's not long at all. You're doing really great, right? I can go either way, but I, I don't think that number actually matters. What matters is the amount of work you've been doing in that time. I know people that are like, I've been doing comedy for 10 years and I I look at their their body of work and I think, well, you're not, you've not done what you should have accomplished in 10 years. And then I hear more of their story and I'm like, oh, well, you had... You took a year off here. You had some major problems here. You did this and that. So it's like you you did comedy for the first time 10 years ago, but it's like you haven't really been doing it for 10 years. So because if that were true for me, then I would say that I've been doing comedy for 18 years, right? But that's just not accurate. It's not accurate. Uh, I moved to Charleston in 2003, August of 2003, late 2003. And some of these dates may be a little off, but at, 
I moved there with my friend. Actually, funny enough, the same friend that uh, left me at the Waffle House because uh, I was drunk and I was yelling at him and he left me. So I took, uh, so we were living together and things were not going well. Surprise, surprise. I'm an, I was an alcoholic and um, I always blamed him and it, he is a bit to blame, but I was also an alcoholic. Uh, so uh, I didn't have any friends. So I ended up taking this improv class at a theater called Theater 99. And I did that somewhere in late 2003. And Upon doing that, I met someone named John Brennan, and John Brennan had a uh, was a friend of mine for a long time. I haven't seen him in a long time, but we're still friends. And he wrote a a one man show called the Banana Monologues. I think it was a play off of the Vagina Monologues, and he used to tour that all around Charleston. And then he ended up getting that into New York City off Broadway. And I got to see his performance. I got to see it from uh, Charleston all the way to Off-Broadway in New York City. Very exciting. And he talked to me one day. He said, because I would, I mean, I've always been Southern. And at the time, I was a little countryer than I am now because I was fresh out of Alabama. But I would also do a character that was more Southern. I would really try to hype it up. And he said, you should do that country character and do some stand-up comedy. And I had never even considered doing stand-up comedy. That seemed terrifying to me. And I was like, I just kind of laughed. And I was like, well, you write me some jokes and I'll do it. Well, John Brennan turned out to be one of the most motivated people I had ever met. And he called me up one day and he goes, hey, I wrote some jokes for you. And by this time, I am living at Sergeant Jasper, which I've talked about on the podcast. But Sergeant Jasper was a big giant building. I lived on the ninth floor. It was outside of the Colonial Lake. I had a lot of great adventures there at the Sergeant Jasper. I I, I, I met a guy who gave me, uh, from South Africa, who gave me some Bill Hicks CDs. That was my first introduction into Bill Hicks. Another guy named Jonathan, who we used to smoke uh, rolled cigarettes together, homemade cigarettes, not left-handed ones, just homemade. And he gave me all of the Radiohead albums. So during this time living at Sergeant Jasper, I was learning about Bill Hicks. I was learning about Radiohead. I learned that Bill Hicks was on a track on Enema, the Tool album that I liked a lot in late high school. I don't like it now. I think it's very evil, even though the music is still great. I, I do think it's evil, but uh, he, he's on a track there. And... Uh, I just, Sergeant Jasper was just such a great time for me in so many different ways. Um, and a guy from there just messaged me. He used to work there. I got, he, he was hooking up with a girl that I liked one time and I, I, I banged on the door to, to interrupt them because they were in the office and he comes out and he goes, what are you doing? And he was mad at me and I, I had to think fast and I was like, oh, I locked myself out of my apartment. Can you let me in? <laughs> and then... And then it was cool. He did let me in. But I was actually mad at him for hooking up with the girl that I liked. Uh, but it was fine. Uh, I was also an alcoholic. I don't know if I've said that. I yelled at the janitor one time. <laughs> and uh, no, I, I think I yelled at a guy for yelling at the janitor. That, that seems to make more sense. Um, I would never yell at a janitor. Actually, I was defending the janitor. But the Sergeant Jasper was a great time. We used to hang out outside. There was a little store there for, for a person that had just moved from the country 
to Charleston. It made me feel very big city-like to live in this big building with a store attached. The store felt like um, off of the uh, clerks. It felt like I was in a clerks movie, and I was like, this is really great, and I loved it. I just felt so fancy. I used to buy Black and Milds in there. Really great. I just loved it. I loved the building. I loved, yeah, the Sergeant Jasper was a lot of fun. So I'm, I'm hanging out there with a guy that I used to work with named uh, Kevin Kemp. And they used to call him Sleepy, I think because he looked like one of the seven dwarves, Sleepy. And he, was, and he was high a lot. So me and Kevin were hanging out at my apartment. This is a thing I wrote down on a, uh, it says 2006. Wow. A camel uh, napkin from 2006. And I wrote this down, and it, it, I said, Kevin, who is obviously drunk and is now being forced to drink water, looks at me and says with a confused look, I don't think they're going to serve me anymore. And I always thought that was so funny because it's like, yeah, Kevin, they're making you drink water. They've stopped letting you drink. They're making you drink water now. <laughs> and... Uh, and I got, um, so around that time, I wrote, uh, I'm way off track with what I want to talk about, but I'm very excited about this. I wrote a couple of poems, and um, I want to read them. Now, I'm going to read them how I wrote them. This is probably 2005 or 2006. Uh, they're not very good. I'm not a great poet, but this is, uh, you know. I'm, this could even be earlier than that time. Actually, it probably is. It's probably like two, more like 2004. But this is called, called Hyman's Poem. Now, before um, I get into it, it's important to understand that in Hyman's, there's stairs. So what you would do in Hyman's is you come up to the front door, you tell the hostess that I got a table for two, and she'll look on the cameras because they have cameras throughout, and she'll find out what tables are available and she'll, uh, she'll say, okay, go to the top of the stairs and ask the hostess up there for table 21. And then you'll do that, and that's how it goes. So if you're, you're waiting tables upstairs, you see these people coming up the stairs. And they are tourists from all over the country, and they are not always the healthiest-looking people. And we're very angry working. When you're waiting tables, you're very angry all the time. I, I, there was very few people that I work with that maintained a good positive attitude. Even me, I had a smile on my face and I was quick to give a high five, but inside I was angry. And they also, we would hand out these crab dip coupons on the street and you come in with this crab dip coupon and you get a free crab dip as long as you order a meal. So people would always come in with those. And then one of the jokes used to be, this is what customers would say all the time because they would eat so much and we'd go i'd go all right uh, can i get you anything else and they go how about a wheelbarrow <laughs> right how about a wheelbarrow to get me out of here right and we just oh we used to make fun of people so bad about that how about a wheelbarrow okay so here we go hyman's poem i see you struggling to climb those stairs i know when you make it you'll be breathing heavy air your quest is for a table so you can stuff your face not later, but now, for you have no time to waste. Bring me a water, a tea, and a beer. That's what you say as I'm filled with dread and fear. It makes me nauseous to hear your stomach growl. You ask for a napkin. How about a beach towel? <laughs> we offer a hundred things. Why can't you just decide? Stop acting like a fool. 
do you have no pride? As your food arrives, I see your eyes get wide, and I ask again, have you no pride? I ask you how it is, I know it doesn't matter. You don't stop to chew, I just watch you get fatter. Now your plate is clean, and you look like a wreck. Now I'm filled with disgust as I drop your check. All your efforts for your mouth, but you will not satisfy. And on the line mark tip, you will not gratify. You look at me and say, thank you so much, dear. I smile politely and say, get in your wheelbarrow and get out of here. <laughs> right? Okay. Okay. So that's the uh, Hyman's poem that I wrote. And uh, all right. So here we go. So I'm hanging out with Kevin. We're sitting out on, on Sergeant Jasper porch and my friend John Brennan calls me. And now me and John had wrote some jokes together. We were all set. We had these jokes wrong. John goes, hey, I'm out on James Island right now. They're letting us open. They're letting us do an open mic. Why don't you come down here and try those jokes out? And I was like, I don't want to do it. I can't do it. And Kevin was like, do it, man. We're both wasted. He was like, do it, man. I'll drive. And he didn't have a car. He meant he'll drive my car. And I was like, okay. So we go down there to this bar on James Island, which I can't remember the name of it now. It ended up being called Stagger Inn, like Stag Aaron, but Stagger Inn. It was an Irish pub back then, still an Irish pub now, I think, but I forget what it was called at the time. But I went on in there and I, uh, I did very drunkly what little bit of my set I had memorized and people laughed and I thought, whoa, I can do this. And then, so my next time was probably late 2004, no, late 2003, early 2004 at a place called the Music Farm. It was a big music venue in Charleston where I saw lots of different performers over the years. Um, uh, I don't know, nothing noteworthy, but the big people would come there. And it was a place, it was a, there was a, some radio DJs at the time, uh, Storm and Kenny in the Morning. And, and they had a, a, they had a couple people, the Southern Avenger and uh, Stupid Mike were all part of that. And this was called Comedy Free with Kenny Z. So they promoted it on 96 Wave, Storm and Kenny in the morning. And it was a big deal. And uh, they, it was free. Kenny did stand up. So he was really pushing this thing. And it was packed. And I had never really done comedy other than standing in that bar drunk for about three minutes. So I go out completely sober. I'm in overalls, no shoes. And I go out on stage. Now, I am more Southern then than I am now, at least in accent. But I'm really hyping it up. And I go out and I'm like, how y'all doing? And I do five minutes and it's pretty good like it's not great but it was good enough to where I was like okay I can do that I can do this so after that I did five minutes and it went pretty well I, I had a couple of other buddies in town Matt Shelnut and Wes Needham uh, I don't know that they want me using their names but I'm not going to say bad things about them but uh we um we just they were all doing stand-up uh, Matt was doing improv Wes was not and we all decided to form a group. We were going to form our, our stand-up group and start doing shows together. So we got together at a bar. We met. We talked. And we decided that we would call ourselves Don't Call Me Susan. That was the name of our stand-up group, Don't Call Me Susan. And so we put on a show, and I made a hand-drawn poster that's 
that looks terrible. Uh, and then we had another guy, Caleb uh, Usri, I think was his last name. I mean, I still know Caleb, but I don't remember his last name right off. But he was going to MC for us. So he was MCing, and the three of us were going to do spots. And so I drew a poster for us. And we were going to do at bar 145, which was, uh, if you're familiar with Charleston, there was Millennium Music, which was the big CD store right on the corner of King and Calhoun. And then in the middle was bar 145, and then on top was a bar called The Terrace. So it was a three-story bar. So we went there and we did it. My old boss from uh, Spectreside, Stu Barber, showed up. Chuck Kelly, another boss. Uh, they showed up. Uh, it was a big deal. We did comedy there. It went really well. I was nervous about it the entire time, but it went really well. It was a lot of fun. And so then we ended up, um, yeah, I mean, so uh, I think I have some video of this, and if I do, I'll try to add it in when I make a video about this, if I ever do. And then we did another show at a bar called The Oasis. And I think The Oasis was our last show as a group. After that, we split up. Uh, I was bringing out a lot of people because I was working at Hyman's. So I was bringing out a ton of people and they were loving my jokes. So I had, you know, I was, I was, you know, really winning out on the shows. And I've always personally felt like that uh, the rest of the group abandoned me because I was doing well. Um, and this was still, this was probably 2004 when this is happening. But the Oasis is significant for me because later, a couple of years down the road, I would end up drinking there quite a bit. They, the Oasis would do a drink. They would do buy one, get two free on liquor drinks. So we would go in, me and my buddy Mike, who I talk about a lot, we would go in and we would just get triple bourbons with a splash of ginger or a splash of Coke. And my friend John Ballard joined us on that Oasis show. And John Ballard did the second comedy free with Kenny Z and he really crushed and we became friends. We did an improv class together and we became really good friends, still are friends. Um, and we did a, me and John um, saw an ad in the paper one time and it was this comic and he was looking for um, comedians in Charleston. This was before social media. So me and John responded and we decided we'd meet him at Barnes and Noble and it was a guy named Maccabee Jones. And he told us he's a road comic. He's been working the road for years. He used to tour with Dave Chappelle is what he told us. And he goes, this is really ironic, man. He goes, this is really ironic. I put an ad in the paper looking for comics and then comics show up. And, you know, I don't know that I even knew what the word irony meant at the time other than a Janis Joplin, not Janis Joplin, Alanis Morissette song. But when we got out, John's like, that guy doesn't know what irony means. He's like, it's not ironic that you put a paper looking for comics and then people come and show up that are comics. He's like, that is the response you were looking for. There's nothing ironic about that. Uh, we responded to his ad. If he put in an ad and then suddenly we popped up and we were like, hey, we're comics. We didn't see your ad, but we, we're comics. That might be ironic. But So we ended up doing some shows with that guy at a place called The Sand Shack in North Charleston. And I think through Maccabee Jones, we met a guy named Greg Patterson who went by Big Daddy for a while. And then uh, later me and John would do show. And I do have some video of doing shows with Maccabee Jones. And that will be fun to show too. Um, and I, I, because I'll say this about Mac, Maccabee Jones. And I, and I don't, I'm not trying to um, trash him because he was always very nice to me. 
but he he used to tell a joke about riding with Dave Chappelle and being on the road with Dave Chappelle. And I, I'm not saying he didn't do it. I mean, this was 2005. I guess, I don't know, Dave Chappelle was probably at the height of his popularity at that time, unless you count right now. But he used to tell a joke about Dave Chappelle. And then uh, one year, new, now McAvee never drank. So one New Year's, I was doing a show with him. And I was hanging out with Mike. I was living on Folly Beach. This is probably one of my last shows at this time. And Maccabee was hanging out. And I was like, oh, he was drinking. I was like, oh, I thought you didn't drink. And he was like, oh, that was my new, well, maybe maybe it wasn't New Year's. It doesn't matter. He goes, it was my, this is my New Year's resolution to drink more. And we all laughed because I was an alcoholic. And I was like, do it, ruin your life. And then later I found out he went to jail for something involving alcohol. And I didn't see him again for a long time. And then I saw him at that same Barnes and Noble, I'm pretty sure, and he pretended to not remember me. Um, but it doesn't matter. So we, and then we did, me and John Ballard did another show with a guy named Johnny Rock. And Johnny Rock, he did a Wolfman impression. Uh, and he got second place. He, this is what he told us. In 1984, Showtime's Funniest Person in America was won by Ellen DeGeneres. And then Johnny Rock got second place. And I was all equipped to make fun of Johnny Rock. And then I looked on his IMDb and I was like, oh, this guy's been working. Like he may not be doing a lot stand-up comedy-wise, but this guy's been in a lot of movies. So I was like, who am I to make fun of this guy? This guy's still working. And then there was a TV show that I did, and I forget the name of it, but it was a, a local TV show. It was a competition. And, um, you know, when every week we had to write new jokes every week, and I was not prepared for it. But all the while, all these shows I'm doing, I'm doing in overalls and no shoes. Um, and so it is... I mean, I had no idea what I was doing. I was 100% memorized, and I just didn't enjoy it that much. I enjoyed comedy when I got off stage, and it went well, and I could be like, see how funny I was? But I didn't never enjoy it while on stage. But I did this thing where we had to write, write jokes um, every week. I'm living on Folly Beach. I'm drinking a lot, and it actually went Pretty well. I got third place overall. And then first place was a guy named Paul Nunez. I don't remember who got second, uh, but Paul Nunez ended up being a friend of mine. I liked Paul. I, I think we're still Facebook friends and we still communicate. So down the road, uh, probably my last two shows before I, I gave up comedy was I put on a show at Barrier Island on James Island. That place is bulldozed down to the ground and it's gone now. But I put on this show and I also, I think I have a poster for it as well. And then I had a poster for our, our show at Oasis too. But I made a poster for this and I invited people from work. And I actually had a really good turnout from work. It was really great. People came out. The show was really good. I think my jokes were pretty weak. I don't know if I have a video of that or not, but I do have some footage of myself acting like a real jackass at Barrier Island on an outdoor show where I was emceeing for a band, and I will share that. But I was out of control, and one of my biggest embarrassments in life is that, <laughs> is that video 
of me at Barrier Island. Uh, okay, so um, I'm not exactly sure of the timeline of these, but so I'm going to say this. I did the show at Barrier Island. I had Paul Nunez, Big Daddy, Greg Patterson, and John Ballard on the show. It was really great. And then I did another one at like a bar uh, downtown near the Hippodrome, which was a big theater. And it went pretty well, but the, the, the owner there wanted to do a DJ in the middle to get more people to buy drinks. And it killed the flow of the whole show, really messed everything up for me. And then I did uh, the music farm again. I did Comedy Free with Kenny Z, something that had gone really well. I did five minutes. He asked me, could I do 20 minutes? And I said, yes. So I had 20 minutes memorized. Now, I don't know if you've ever memorized 20 minutes of material, but it is a lot. And I had it memorized. And I went up and about halfway through my set, it was so quiet in there because people had stopped laughing. It was funny for a while, but people had stopped laughing. And this lady yells out, you suck. And it was so quiet that everybody heard it. And I, I froze basically but then I just continued on and I finished my time. I finished my set. And after that, I really started to hate comedy. I was like, I really don't even want to do this anymore. And uh, I did an open mic and I got heckled pretty bad in an open mic. Interestingly enough, in the same bar where I would go on to host Big Gun. Big Gun would take over that building. At the time, it was not Big Gun, but I got heckled there. And I, as I was leaving the bar, I told John Ballard, I said, I told you I didn't even want to do this shit anymore. And I think I pretty much quit after that. And so let's say one, uh, two, four, six. I'm counting here, as you can tell. I probably did 15 shows. In that time, in that time between late 2003 and 2006, when I would eventually quit altogether, probably did 15 shows. Now, just for context of what it's like for me now, I do 15 shows in three weeks or less. I've done 15 shows in two weeks. Like, so to do 15 shows in two and a half years is nothing. I do... Six show when I'm working and when I'm going full on, I'm doing five shows a week minimum, right? So, and, 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 and these shows I was doing back then, I was doing anywhere from five minutes to, to 21 time. I'm doing five to 10 minutes per show. Now I do, so what's 15 times 10 is uh, 150. So 150 minutes I did, that is two hours and 20 minutes. Now I'll do five hours in a weekend easy. So what I do in a weekend now was equivalent to the entire first two and a half years of me doing comedy. So that's why I say this. It's not fair for me to say that I started comedy in 2003. I did some comedy in 2003. Now, in that time, there's also a couple other things I did. I went to the Comedy House Theater in Columbia, which was mostly a black club, and I had never done anything like that. I had lots of black friends in comedy. I never really thought about it, and I just didn't realize that it was a bit of a different vibe, 
And I went, and there were six comics. I was the only white one. Keep in mind, I'm wearing overalls and no shoes. And so I walk out onto the stage, and I get laughs just by walking out there. And then I had a really great set at the Comedy House Theater. I had a really great set. I was terrified, but I had a really great set. And the the MC or not the MC the the guy booking came up to me and he was like email me next week I want to get you back up here and then I never did I messed up I never did so and then the last thing I did this wasn't the last thing but the last thing I'm going to talk about this was in December of 2004 I did comedy for the Hyman's Christmas party and the it was back at bar one four five. Um, where I had already done comedy and where they really liked me. And I did comedy and it was, the, the Christmas party was double booked. So it was Hyman's and another seafood restaurant. So that other seafood restaurant wanted to dance. That's what they wanted to do was dance. And we wanted me to do comedy. So we cut off the music for me to do comedy and they heckled me and I had a, I had a pretty good comeback joke, but it was a classic joke. I don't come to your job and slap the out of your mouth. You know what I mean? And, uh, oh man, the people at Hyman's loved it. They thought I was the greatest comedian ever. And then the music got cut and people almost got into a fight and Hyman's could be pretty, pretty gangster. And, uh, it was almost a fight and it was wild and, Hyman's had given me that year a made-up award, but they gave me the Best Sense of Humor Award. And I've looked for it. I can't find it. I thought I had it. I don't know where it's at. It's a shame. But I got really upset at the end of the night. Now, this picture was in a frame. This plaque was in a frame. And you had to get it going. It was on the second floor, so you had to go in an elevator to get up there. And I was yelling at the bartender, and I slammed the frame down on the bar. I didn't... I was just trying to make a point. I was just trying to make a little noise and it shattered all over the bar. And I was like, oh gosh. And I just went out and I got in the elevator and in the elevator was the bartender, a bouncer, and then two of my managers. My managers told me later, they were like, we were just in there to make sure they didn't fight you. Um, but then I got out of there. It was a huge embarrassment, a huge embarrassment. Actually, probably the last time I did comedy was... I would, I would bet it was 2006 or 2007 at a Christmas party of Hyman's. They asked me to do it again. And it was such a huge failure that when I was done with, I had overalls again. I could not get rid of the overalls. Probably 2006 because I lived downtown. I don't know. It doesn't matter. I left out the back door of that bar and I climbed two fences to get away from that. I couldn't do it. I was like, there's no way. I cannot do it. And, um, and then in 2008, I quit. So I quit for at least two years. I wouldn't touch it for about two years. I was terrified to do comedy. I just, I, I was scared to do it because I had bombed a lot and I had so many bad experiences and I just didn't even know what I was doing. I didn't know how to write jokes. I was just fumbling, bumbling around all the time. And I just, I just hated it. Oh, I forgot about this one. I did a, ah, uh, uh, okay. Uh, I did a, uh, in Mount, on Isle of Palms, I did a show at the Windjammer, I think is what it was called. That may not be the right name, but doesn't matter. And I was out there and my friend Mike and Greg went with me. And I was up there and I told my first two jokes 
and they crushed so hard. People were banging on the walls. And then I started my next joke and it started to bomb and I started to sink lower and lower and lower on the stage. And I heard somebody laugh at one of the jokes and I go, this guy gets it. And I look and it's my friend Greg. And he, when I point to him, he completely turns around and turns his back to me. Not out of disrespect, out of shame that we all felt. And that was, that was the moment, I think. That was, I mean, I had bombed enough times. But that was a moment where I was like, enough is enough. But then in 2008, my friend John Brennan called me again. The same guy who got me to do it the, sec the first time asked me to do it again. And I came out. I wrote this bit, this letters of the alphabet bit. And then I did it at Theater 99. And it crushed so hard that I made friends with... I had not been... I mean, Theater 99 and John Brennan bought it all the way back around. I was not even involved with Theater 99 anymore, really. I was still their friend, but I wasn't involved with them. I was, I was drinking a lot, and I was completely gone from the comedy world. And doing that gig at Theater 99 with John Brennan, it made everybody in Theater 99 that I didn't know my friend. And then I went home that night and I was buzzing so much just on how good I felt from doing comedy. I text John Brennan. I was like, I want to do this more. I want to do this more. I caught the bug. And then from 2008 to 2012, I drunkenly went around the city of Charleston doing comedy. I ran the upper deck, uh, open mic. I did a show at theater 99. I did, um, um, you know, uh, I started Big Gun. I, I I hosted various gigs. I hosted gigs for for uh, uh, burlesque shows. I hosted shows for the Roller Derby Girls. Um, I was a man about town. I did things for theater uh, for uh, the Charleston City Paper. I hosted music events. I did all sorts of things uh, from 2008 to 2012, and that's when I say I started comedy as 2008. But there's an argument to be had even there for me because in 2012, I quit drinking. So from 2012 to 2014, I lived in Charleston doing comedy. And you could say that's when I really became a comic. And then in 2014, I started working the road. And then in 2017, I started doing some headlining. 2018, I became a full-on headliner. And with each one of those steps, I get more and more stage time and I get, I can get infinitely better faster. So if I tell you I've been doing comedy since 2003, the time that I've really been getting good is from 2015 on. Um, and it's amazing. So if you're, if you're a comic and you're um, just getting into this, just know that this can be a long road and it can be full of ups and downs and full of letdowns, but it can be also be full of lots of highs. And you just got to stick with it if you really want to do it. That's why I always say with comedy, I mean, if you really want to do it, that's the only way you're going to be able to do it. And, and it seems to be obvious, but I, I just, I don't think that that's as obvious as it sounds. Um, and another thing is you... 
you may just do it for a hobby for a while. Don't just up and quit your job right away. Do it for a hobby. Get your footing. Figure out who you want to be, what you're trying to do. And, um, and then see where it takes you. And this is my advice to comics right now. I don't think I got a button for advice to comics. This is my advice right now, if you're, especially if you're a feature. If you're a headliner, yeah, you know what to do. It's like, I don't have any advice for people at my level or above me. I mean, what sense would that make? This is only people that are featuring and below. I think right now, uh, with COVID restrictions and all the money that clubs have lost, they're really not wanting to give hotels for features. So if you're trying to feature right now, my advice is try to feel it out. See if the club itself is giving hotels before you offer this. Because if the club's giving a hotel, take the hotel. But if you find out, all right, this club is giving feature work, but they're not giving out hotels. Email them and then tell them that you can find your own lodging. And then if you get booked, figure out what your own lodging is. There is um, Adam Wagner at ignite hospitality i don't know if that's still a thing adam wagner at ignite hospitality is what i used to do all the time he can get you a, a room that generally costs anywhere from 100 to 150 dollars for 30 bucks and then you just have to write reviews it's super easy um and then there is airbnb there is uh, couch surfing i assume couch surfing is still around i haven't done it in a while and uh you know or if you have a friend you can crash with like Figure that out, but what you need always as you're trying to move up is stage time. Stage time is what's going to make you good the fastest. Um, and also, uh, if you have a club locally, now is your time. Really try to get in with the club because if, especially if your local club is not um, buying hotels, this is your time to try to get in and be a local feature. Don't pester them. I would say email them once a month with something updated, a new video each time. And be good. Just be good at comedy. Write comedy. I heard someone say the other day about a lot of comics, and I see a lot of comics doing a, a lot of online stuff. I don't do as much online stuff because I, I want my stand-up to be good. I've heard it said that some of these comics are doing everything but working on their act. And it's absolutely true. I mean, but if you get social media fame, great. You'll be headlining clubs in no time, whether you have an act or not, you'll be making tons of money. But if you want to be a comic, well, be a comic. All right, I want to read two more poems. Uh, this is the Hyman song. They were headed towards the stairs, but they sat down at the table. We told them to go upstairs, but they weren't able. I told them about the fishboard and said what I had to say. They lost their crab dip coupon, but wanted one anyway. Then they ordered soup, two cups of she-crab, and tipped me a dollar on that $12 tap. And then I labeled that effing old people. I was angry. They wanted the lobster broiled because they never had it fried. And you know they hated it because they're never satisfied. They wanted an espresso and flavored tea. And I couldn't even buy a beer with the tip that they left me. And then I called them bad. I called them effing bastards. <laughs> I, I was so mad. I wrote this down on a, I probably wrote this at work. This is on a guest slip. And then the last one is just two lines. But when I get off, I'll throw my apron in the trunk 
and I'll head down to Big John's where I'll be getting drunk. And that was uh, uh, Big John's. We used to drink out a lot. And I used to throw my apron in the trunk. It was so dirty. And this was also written on a guest check. And this is just a small poem because used to, you could smoke inside in Charleston, inside buildings. And inside Hyman's, we had a couple of designated, designated areas where we would go and smoke. And, you know, you'd pop in there real fast in between tables and just have, puff a couple of, you know, hits off the cigarette, get you a little nicotine fix, a little bit of a buzz, and feel good to go back out. And once that ordinance changed in the city, we we're no longer allowed to smoke inside. So we had to go outside. And then they started getting mad at us about doing that. Hyman's did. So you would have to get a pass to go smoke. It was really irritating. And I was, I was really mad about it. I said, rules at work. What a joke. I need a pass just to smoke. I feel as though I'm back in school. Management thinks they're so effing cool. Soon enough, I'll be out of here smoking cigs and drinking beer. And I won't smell like seafood, like Hyman seafood. And I was so mad, but I love Hyman's. Hey, thank you. I do love Hyman's. They, they employed me a second time when I didn't smoke or drink, and I was a much better, nicer employee. Uh, and I appreciated them more. Thank you guys for listening to this podcast. I know I said I had some more Bible stuff, but this is what I'll say. I got to get out of here. Um, I would say go do this. I just read... Um, I just read all of First Timothy and Second Timothy and First Peter. Really great, but Second Timothy, Second um, Timothy chapter three, amazing. I recommend it. This starts. This know also in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. That's just a part of it. I think it's amazing. Second Timothy chapter three, go check it out. I appreciate you guys. We're having a good time.